So we've been here together now for about a day and uh, engaging in this practice together. Exploring what it means to to be here with ourselves, with our experience. And perhaps we might sometimes wonder, you know, what's going on? Why are we engaged in this way? What is it that makes sense of this situation? Sometimes, of course, we might feel we have a quite a clear sense of what that might be. But wherever of those two or somewhere in between you may find yourself, it's useful just, I think, sometimes to reflect on what is the really the foundation for this activity that we're engaged in, this practice of meditation, this being here on retreat. And I think it comes out of a very fundamental, a very universal and shared element of what it means to be what we are, to be human beings. It seems to me that we are interested in well-being, in happiness, and the relief of distress and suffering in our lives and in our world. That seems to me something kind of almost we take it for granted that that's so. And yet, what's interesting, I think, is that it also appears often that we somehow can't quite find the way to bring that into into fullness or into a sense of fulfillment. That wish for happiness, for peace, for the end of suffering, and pain. It's natural that we would wish for it, but it seems it's not immediately obvious how to go about it. And uh, it's something I think to, to recognize, to see that we don't come into this world with an instruction book that tells us how to live. There's probably a few people we know who might have tried to give us some instructions along the way, some of them more useful than others. But uh, life doesn't have an instruction book, it seems. And so it's important, insofar as we may not have found ourselves so able or successful at this fulfilling of what we, what we wish for, what we long for in our hearts, what we feel and seem to make sense of what we might be here for. Happiness, peace, fulfillment. That we kind of reflect on what it means then, how it is that this is so. And really this is where spiritual teachings come into the world, come into our lives, perhaps begin to speak to us. Because Spiritual teachings are concerned with what is of most importance to us. And I like to come and pay my respects to the image behind me now of the Buddha, who is a human being, 
when I come into the talk, into the uh, the Dharma Hall here to give a, a talk in the evening, to just take a moment to express my appreciation to this person and what he offered to me personally, to our world, and what he represented. Because as I said, he was a human being. He was a person who struggled with the same struggles that perhaps you and I have encountered, who also wondered, how does one go about making sense of? How does one find a way through this rather complicated, at times confusing and sometimes also distressing, while at other times rather beautiful existence? How does one navigate this journey? And in his own dedication and commitment, he, he spent the larger part of his life in the exploration of, and in his understanding, his remarkable understanding that came through that, sharing what he'd understood in a way that was remarkably accessible, it seems to me, and continues to be remarkably accessible 2,600 years after he lived. And so the Buddha's rather famous for probably quite a few things he said, but one of the things he's particularly famous for saying is, I teach one thing, and one thing only. I teach dukkha, or suffering, the experience of not quite being able to find satisfaction, happiness, peace, fulfillment. The word he used was dukkha. He says, I teach one thing, dukkha, and the end of dukkha. And it, it's something that perhaps resonates to us. We can think, oh yeah, I know about suffering, unhappiness, struggle, difficulty. And... Um, I remember a friend of mine uh, in America once observing, he said, now that's curious, isn't it? This famous statement of the Buddha, but actually, when he says, I teach one thing, and one thing only, but that's two things, dukkha and the end of dukkha, what's going on? And he, he reflected on it, he said, and I don't think he was being disrespectful, he sort of observed, he thought, well, maybe the Buddha just started off teaching about dukkha, teaching about suffering, teaching about you know difficulty, struggle, unhappiness, but he found that wasn't a very popular teaching. You know, people weren't that interested because they know plenty about that. We all know about that. We don't always talk about it because we sort of don't like to let on sometimes how much it's a significant element of our life. But my friend, as I said, he went on to think or to reflect. He said, well, maybe the Buddha thought that it would be better rather than just teaching one thing, i.e. dukkha, suffering, to teach about the end of suffering. And that would be something people would be interested in certainly sounds interesting. I think it's actually a very compelling offering. And so I think this is something we're interested in. We're interested in understanding what is the process, what is the wisdom, what is the journey that resolves those aspects and elements of our human existence which we find so difficult, which sometimes don't make sense that sometimes feel more than we can bear. And that's one of the useful sort of translations or understandings or ways of expressing what dukkha means, that which is hard to bear. And the Buddha's teaching is concerned with the transformation of that, the freeing of our human heart from that. I'm just getting used to wearing these things. I've had them for years, but I'm still getting used to wearing them because mostly I don't. 
but it's getting to the point where I can't fight with them anymore. Oh, well, <laughs> I can't fight with the need for them anymore. It's kind of an interesting process. Oh, okay, so I really do need to wear glasses to be able to read what's in front of me, even though I've written it out in really large letters. I got away with that for about a year, and I think I've come to the end of that strategy. If I wrote it out any larger, it would take sort of, you know, umpteen pages. Of course, the problem is when I put the glasses on, then I can't see you. You go all blurry, and I don't like that either. So it's really interesting, isn't it, how life puts us in these situations? Well, either I can see you, but maybe I won't remember what I was supposed to say, and if I can't read it, then, or what I wanted to say, then that's a bit of a problem. And then I put these on, and then suddenly the people I want to speak to, I, they've disappeared, or turn into this sort of blurry coloured mass. Um, so for now, I think I can manage with them down here and look up and down. But it's one of those things, isn't it? There's so many circumstances in our life. We try and resolve the problem by doing this, and it creates a different problem. You ever had that experience? Yeah. So we, we have this wish to care for ourselves, for our life, for our world, for others, in so many ways. We care about the condition of our hearts and our minds. And this is at the very core of it, our bodies, our hearts, our minds. We're deeply concerned with how it is in our experience. And of course we're concerned with others too. But often what we see, if we look, it comes down to this. This heart, this mind, this body. We're interested in this. We care about this deeply. And uh, in his book, uh, there's, a, there's a book I encountered by um, a German-born Buddhist monk, Nyanaponika Tara. Tara means elder. And it was one of the first books on meditation I ever read or found when I was traveling in India many years ago. And one of the passages in the beginning of the book has stayed with me ever since I first read it. And he, he, he was speaking about this situation. He said, this heart-mind is bound all over and yet can know freedom here and now. And again, these two pieces expressed this sense of being bound, entangled, caught up, struggling, that we may recognize, that we may resonate with. This heart-mind is bound all over, yet can know freedom here and now. This vision of possibility for the human heart, the human mind, the human life. To find a, a way of understanding and being in this world in which the entanglement and the bondage drops away. This is what we talk about as the, the journey of the awakening heart. The process of coming to understand our life in such a way that we can live it in harmony with life rather than in conflict with it. In harmony with ourselves rather than in conflict with it. And there's three primary elements that the Buddha spoke of, that he pointed to, within the way we might live our life, within this, what we could call, path or journey of spiritual development, unfoldment, awakening. And the, the way I articulate these is in terms of goodness, presence and wisdom. And goodness, in the Buddha's language, he was talking about uh, dana and sila, an expression of, of goodness in life as being essentially a sense of sharing our life with others. Understanding that the ways in which we share things with others tend to really uplift our heart, tend to really bring a lot of joy. And sila 
is the word that he used to speak of non-harming. Understanding that when we refrain from causing harm to others or to ourselves, again, it brings an incredible sense of uplift to the heart, a sense of well-being and a sense of deep inner peace. Presence, as the Buddha spoke of as samadhi or samatha, is about the journey of meditation, of developing the mind, the capacity to steady, to calm, to focus and to penetrate into our experience. And wisdom, the Buddha spoke of in the word, using the word panya, the capacity to understand, to see clearly the way things are, to see what is true. And in the seeing, being able thereby to align our life with the deeper truths, with the deepest wisdom, and thereby come into harmony with its flow and unfoldment. So I'd like to speak a little bit about these elements of our practice that are relevant both to our lives but equally to what we're doing here very much. And that first element of goodness the Buddha spoke of again and again and I'm struck by the fact that he often spoke about it before he would speak about meditation. He wouldn't talk about, you know, when he met people the first time, let's you know, give them some meditation instructions, this is what you need to do. No, actually he would talk about the relational reality of human beings. How when we share, when, we, when someone gives us something, we feel good. How when we offer something to another, we feel good. There's something very, it's pointing to something very central, what, it, what makes us what we are as human beings. That, that when we feel sort of cut off from, or when we, when we feel caught in a place of selfishness. How painful that actually turns out to be if we examine it, if we feel it. And likewise, with, with the actions we make in the world that can be either beneficial or harmful to others, seeing how that affects us, seeing how we are impacted by that, this is the Buddha's teaching on karma, seeing that when we cause harm to others and to ourselves, it's actually painful to us in our hearts. When we take care of others, when we refrain from harming, when we contribute to well-being, it actually uplifts our heart, it brightens our heart, it makes us feel good. Even though things may be difficult, circumstances may be challenging. And so we have these intentions or orientations as a foundation of being on retreat, of, of, of some sense of a sharing, a giving, and everyone is giving something in their work period, for instance, to the well-being of us all. We've taken that sense of, of the, the precepts, as Leela so beautifully spoke about them, as a, as a sacred basket of support, of caring for each other, being sensitive to life around us, human life and all life. And there's something that comes a natural kind of happiness that comes for us, not when we become perfect at this, because we don't become perfect at it. We still mess up, we still get it wrong, we can't always anticipate every impact of every action, or sometimes even when we can, we don't feel we have a choice about it. I, I reflect and try and remember and feel into the truth of what it is to get in my car and drive here from where I live, just eight miles away, because I know as though it's not my intention, there are small creatures that will die in the path of my vehicle. At night, little moths in the windscreen. Just today I was out um, walking on the lanes, and um, actually running, but there was a um, 
a frog squashed on the road. Now, I don't think it was me, but there was a frog squashed on the road by a car probably in the last day because it wasn't that squashed, but it was dead. It was gone. Its life was over and, well, I guess it could have been me. I don't know. In the last 24 hours. It was certainly someone in a car. And just those places where we just stop and say, okay, yeah, so I want to let myself be in touch with that, be sensitive to that, without kind of having to give myself a hard time if I can't be perfect, but just let myself feel the impacts. Because that actually frees the heart to let oneself feel. And so if you feel some sorrow or remorse around something where harm was caused, it's like, okay, I can feel that. It doesn't mean I need to be hard on myself because of that. But then maybe I just want to try a little, sort of take a bit more care where I can. Maybe, you know, it encourages me to get on my bicycle more times because I know that's less dangerous, at least for other creatures, a bit trickier for me sometimes. But, you know, it's a balance there. And so understanding that our actions lead to happiness or unhappiness according to what they express. If they express kindness, if they express um, generosity, if they express sensitivity, they actually lead to our well-being. They don't always lead to our material advantage or advancement. Now that has to be distinguished because in our culture we've somehow managed to confuse material advantage with happiness and well-being. And they have very little correlation, very little correlation. I was reading an article on The Guardian online just a couple of days ago, um, and the, uh, the author was speaking about surveys that have been done, and um, I think they were in America, but they could equally be here, about the 1% who have between them ownership of 48% of all resources and financial you know, um, material goods and money. And that amongst those people, pretty reliably, they thought they needed about to be happy and sort of secure about 25% more than they had, he said. And there was one person who thought, I'll probably be all right once I've got about a billion dollars. And you think, gosh, I mean, I don't know where you guys are on that scale, but, you know, I'm quite a distant from there. And, uh, and yet that idea that kind of having more, getting more is going to make us happy. I imagine you know this because you wouldn't be here otherwise. You're not going to get a lot of those sort of things out of coming here for a week. But it's so prevalent in our culture. Understanding that in fact what we align our heart with, that's what brings happiness. Not what we get out of it materially. Although of course we need to take care of our material well-being, our health, our survival, our shelter. And, you know, they're the basic things that's important too. But to give ourselves permission to be learning in this journey, to be finding our way, to be coming to the understanding or deepening the understanding, deepening what we understand already, discovering what we do not yet understand. And that's really a process in which we make mistakes. We get it wrong. We don't always do it right. Meditation, there's no other way to learn how to do this practice except by trying it, engaging yourself and finding out what's useful, what isn't. There's a, there's a great story about learning that I, I often like to share, and it uh, involves a, a committed Zen student of many, many years, Zen, Zen Buddhism, and a meditator. I had the opportunity to meet the master, the senior, most 
wise and wonderful teacher in, in, the, um, in that uh, lineage of Zen, that this person was a practitioner for many years. And he was very excited and very, you know, he knew he'd just have a few minutes and he knew the Zen master was pretty stern and a bit scary, so he was kind of anxious. And went along to the interview, sat down, bowed three times, as one does, looked up, and he, and he asked his question. He said, what's the most important thing to cultivate? And the Zen master sitting, she was sitting like this, in her grey robes, stern, a little bit fierce, but probably a little kindly, though I don't think he could see that. And she looked at him, she said, hmm, discernment. Good judgment. And he goes, Oh, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Master Bows. And he says, Can you can you tell me how does one develop how does one cultivate discernment and good judgment? And she looked at him and she said, Hmm. Experience. Oh, thank you, of course, thank you, thank you. And he said, This last question. How does one get experience? Hmm. Bad judgment. We've probably all been there, huh? It's so easy to think we should have figured it out by now. As if somehow having turned whatever it was, 18 or 20, we'd grown up and we should know how to do it. It's kind of the story we get told. If we can allow ourselves to be in a process of learning here, rather than in a, some idea of acquisition, that we're here to get something, we're actually here to understand something. And that understanding is really supported by the humility that allows us to, to make mistakes, to start again, to find our way. The second foundational element of, of the practice of what we're doing here is uh, presence. The practice of meditation, the development of what we could call samadhi or samatha in the broad sense, a calming, stabilizing, an opening of heart and mind. And this, this process, I often I remember being asked when I was first practicing, and meditation was still a pretty weird thing to be doing then, and uh, normally when I mentioned meditation, that was the conversation would just stop, you know, some kind of sort of sort of scary or sort of frozen sort of looking away and oh my gosh this is a weirdo um, sort of response. Um, it's really lovely that it's changed and actually meditation has become kind of recognized as beneficial, as wholesome, as useful and uh, not particularly weird at all. I think it's kind of normal myself. But one of the words I came up with for describing what I was doing in those years in a way that made sense to me was happiness training. Happiness training. It's like what brings happiness is something we can train ourselves in. We can learn about. We can come to discover. And the, the fundamental element in this, in this realm is that this heart and this mind are blown and carried, pulled and pushed by so many forces. And to learn to train ourselves, to develop a capacity to stabilize, to steady, in a way to walk a straight line, requires a gentle but firm discipline, a kindly but committed engagement with what's happening. To be able to collect, to gather, to draw together the remarkable capacity 
of our heart and mind, of this human wakefulness that we are all participating in. To actually harness that so that it's not fragmented, so that it's in harmony, so that it starts to clarify and become a lens through which our life is revealed to us. It's a process of training, or we can understand it, that element as a process of training. And it's kind of like training a puppy. We need to be kindly and yet firm. It's no good to be punishing the puppy every time it does something wrong. It won't be a happy puppy, and it won't actually learn very much at all. But to see, whenever the mind wanders off, we go, Ah, oh, look, there you are. Come back here. Oh, that's where you've gone. Huh, curious. So, you know, puppies like to chase butterflies. They like to water trees. They like to dig up flowers. They do all sorts. They chase cats. You know, puppies do that. Minds, we've got our own trees and flowers and butterflies and cats and all of that going on. Sometimes it looks like a cute puppy and sometimes you think that's an animal, you know? And it's not that different inside if you reflect on it. At least that's what I find anyway. I don't know necessarily what's your inner experience there. But seeing how we're pulled and pushed so much, these reactions that draw us, these experiences that arise for us, sounds or thoughts or feelings, memories from past, thoughts about future, and how much they seem to constellate around a sense of who I am or who I was or who I will be, which is what a lot of the pull that they exert upon us derives from, the way in which we construct a sense of, of who we are out of the stories, out of the impressions, out of the experiences of past and present and future. And so there's something about learning to just see the way we're pulled or the way we're pushed, how much time we spend in the past. And the past is gone. It's not there. You can't change it. You, no matter how many times you rerun it, even if you rerun it differently than it actually happened, which is an interesting thing we do, have you noticed? Rerunning the past as if it happened the way I wanted it to? It doesn't change it. It really doesn't change it. And likewise, then, however many times we imagine what the future might be, it doesn't actually enable us to ensure it's going to be that way. So starting to release ourselves from the trance of being caught in that world of past and future that doesn't exist and that draws so much of our energy away from right here, from right now, where our life is unfolding, where there's a remarkable degree to which we can influence and transform qualitatively the experience of being alive. But by engaging with it here, we can't do that in the past or the future because neither of them have any meaningful reality. Of course, we can learn from the past. And that's useful, to be able to learn from the past to see, oh, what was beneficial, what was wholesome, what was maybe problematic or harmful. Sure. And we do need to give attention to the future sometimes. We need to know that, you know, my job is at this time and I should turn up then and do it. Or the sitting begins now, I should come along. You know, none of us would have got here without being able to think about the future. So we're not saying that's not okay or problematic in any way. It's more like knowing where I am. Oh, right now, yeah, I can know that in, you know, 30 minutes or so, the talk will hopefully be finished. I can't guarantee it. And, you know, the next thing will be happening or later on in the evening we'll be sitting again. Or 
tomorrow and all of that one can know while sitting here, being very clear where one is. And so learning to walk in a straight line in the midst of the winds that blow us and uh, there was a bit of wind out there earlier so I don't know if some of you felt what it was like walking slowly and if you're walking quite slowly sometimes the balance takes a while to figure out how to do slow walking. Have you noticed? We get used to walking fast but when we slow it down it's a bit like learning for the first time and it's slow and it's a bit wobbly and it's you know, a bit like a you know, an infant taking their baby steps, and it's a bit embarrassing. I've, have any of you lost, you don't have to say, I'm not asking to put your hand up, but, you know, have any of you lost your balance and almost fallen over? Because I remember it happened to me often, and it can still happen in walking meditation. Because we're not doing it from a learned template of how you do this. At least we're trying to do it from a, a sense of immediacy in doing it right now, not from a, a pattern of training. So that's part of what keeps it alive, makes it fresh. And uh, sometimes if one's got really good at walking meditation, we know how to do it, we can walk really slow. You can be really mindful. At least you can look really slow and look really mindful. And you might even start to think, oh, yeah, I wonder if anyone's noticed how slow and how mindful I'm walking. But of course, at that point, you're not really being very mindful or present at all because you've learned how to do that meditator walk. And it's pretty cool. But... It isn't meditation. So it's not about that, kind of getting it slow and sort of smooth. It's more about, oh yeah, can I come back into the experience again and again? Because when our mind is at the mercy of reactivity, if we're constantly driven by the way our mind can generate the idea and it's just an idea. I want this. I want that. I don't like this. I don't like that. Sure, some things we need for our well-being. Some things are harmful to us. We need to protect ourselves from them. But so much of what goes on is much more in the realm of preference. And preference goes on forever without end. And never actually really resolves. It's not again to say we shouldn't have preferences. It's okay. I like red. So I get a, if I can get a red shawl, I'll get a red shawl because I like red. But if I haven't got a red shawl and I have to have a blue one, you know, it's going to be okay. There's a part of us sometimes think, you know, I don't know if you get this, um, you know, I like a certain shape of cutlery. So sometimes I'll be kind of fishing through the cutlery looking for a nice one that's going to feel nice in my hand. But actually it doesn't really matter, does it? If it doesn't feel nice in my hand, the food still nourishes me. We have these little things. Preferences are okay. But being able to understand the, the limitations of them and the place they have, which is, when we can, why not? But when we can't, it doesn't matter. We don't need to fulfill them all. And to see that we learn to pay attention to our experience. Because there's a way in which, although we might think we want to be here, often we don't really want to be here. Because to be here would to be in contact with something that at times is scary, almost always is unpredictable, is occasionally and not infrequently quite uncomfortable or painful, isn't always flattering, doesn't always make us look good. And all these things we'd kind of like to be able to be in control of. 
And in our stories, in our minds, we can give ourselves the impression that we're getting in control of all of this. When the story of our life probably reveals to us actually that we're not. So, being able to recognize when we're being pulled, like, have you ever noticed yourself being pulled towards the end of the sitting, thinking, oh, I can't wait till the sitting's over. You know, it'll be so good once the sitting's over. And we just have this imagining, this fantasy arises that the end of the sitting will be bliss and joy and happiness and relief. And it may be for just a few minutes, but then we're walking. And have you noticed that after a little while in the walking, one starts thinking, I can't wait for the walking to be over. You know, we start looking forward to the next sitting, the one that we were actually hoping to escape from not so long ago. And, and then it's lunch, and it's like, oh, great, lunch. We start thinking, you know, I don't want to be sitting or walking or standing, all that meditation. I've done enough of that, thank you. Lunch, lunch will be good. How long can we stay with the lunch before we're thinking about a nap afterwards? Or a cup of tea? So we just keep slipping away. And the practice here is very much just to keep bringing ourselves back, noticing as we do that, and bringing ourselves back. And as we do that, we start to see what's going on perhaps more clearly. We start to understand the process of our hearts, our minds and our lives. And that one of the fundamental elements of that understanding that the Buddha pointed to, that he spoke of again and again, is the way in which we start to imagine that certain experiences or circumstances or things or relationships can somehow give us lasting and complete fulfillment or satisfaction. When they come. It's just the simple fundamental reality that we start to see if we look at it, if we pay attention to it. This is something that probably those of you who have done retreats like this times before, maybe many times, will have heard this again and again. I've heard it from my teachers. I've heard it from my colleagues. I hear myself say it again and again. And still, something about the wish and hope to believe that something, when I get it the way I want it, is going to do it for me, is so compelling. And this is something we need to look at, we need to reflect on. Experience is changing. Moment after moment. No one thing that we can get, no one thing that we can have, that we can become, is going to somehow fulfill us. It can't do that. And as I was commenting before, often the more successful we are at getting things that we want, the more we feel we need to accumulate, whether they be material things or spiritual experiences. If we're doing it from that place of trying to somehow complete or fulfill ourselves through the thing, through the object, through the experience, it really doesn't work. So seeing if we can keep coming back to this simple place of presence, of wakefulness, of just noticing what's happening, without judging when we find ourselves chasing after things, or wanting things, or hoping for things, or you know, the other side of which is the kind of where we're resisting, or reversive, or reactive to, when we think, if only this thing goes away, if only this wasn't happening, if my mind would be quiet, then I could meditate. 
You know, if your mind becomes quiet, you might get bored. It happens to people all the time. It's like nothing's going on. I want some entertainment. Our main source of internal entertainment's just gone quiet for a moment. We might like it, we might not. But we sort of have these ideas of what it will be like and what it will look like under certain circumstances. And they very rarely turn out to be what they promise to be. And what happens in that mechanism is that because we give all the attention and focus to the condition or circumstance, the thing that we're looking for, whether it be a great meditation, and of course, who wouldn't mind? I wouldn't mind a great meditation experience. They're nice enough when they come. You know, that's all right. Um, or a nice lunch. I enjoyed, It was lovely lunch today. I don't know if you enjoyed it, but I thought it was great. And it's like, mmm, good, nourishing, tasty. Um, and that, and And that's all lovely. And yet the senses of... Okay, but that's not what's most important. That's not the most fundamental thing to be attending to, to be orienting towards here. As we start to see, as we start to understand the nature of experience, we start to notice how our reaction to things is such a key, in de- a key determinant in the qualitative experience. So when we, when we grab hold of, when we take hold of something, there's something painful about what happens there. When we, you know, when we have a moment of calm, and I'm sure for most of you, if not all of you, there's been moments of calm. When after, oh, well, you know, the day of sort of aching body and weariness and times sort of agitation or restlessness or confusion, suddenly the mind and the body, just for a moment, the body is at ease, the mind is quiet. It's like, ah, just for a moment. And then it's like, great, I've got it, now I'm here. You know, done it. And we can't just receive it, we need to somehow take hold of it. And in that, we actually lose touch with it. We lose the contact, we lose the experience that we didn't kind of own, but that we opened into. And likewise, when we're resisting or struggling with something, and sometimes, you know, there's physical discomfort. And as as we've said, it's okay if you need to change your posture at some point in a sitting because the body's under too much pressure. But for most of us, our habit is to change as soon as anything feels uncomfortable. And in our normal day-to-day lives, we would change the posture all the time. We don't always notice that we're doing it. And that's part of what happens here, is because we're intending to be relatively still in the posture. We notice the urge to want to adjust. But you know, if you sit in a really comfortable chair, with, you know, like a, I'm talking about like, a, like an armchair with, you know, with a footstool and plenty of cushions and padding and make yourself really comfortable and really don't move, it doesn't take long before you get uncomfortable. Not much longer than it would be sitting here on a cushion on a hard floor, just as we are. Not that hard a floor, but it's not as if it's that padded. Huh? And so this, this thing goes on whereby what happens when something uncomfortable arises... And it might not be something that's really problematic in terms of discomfort. If, if with some pain in the body, it, it's kind of really becoming intense and you're gritting your teeth, contracting against it, actually the wisdom of the situation, the understanding that would be useful is to say, actually, that's probably not so helpful. Certainly if after you change your posture, adjust your body, it keeps hurting or intensifying, if you find yourself hobbling through the walking meditation on you know, your injured knee, then not a good idea. Um, really, not such a useful thing. 
But often it's not that. It's more that what happens is it's a little uncomfortable and we contract and we go, oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. And it's actually the aversion that's really painful. It's the aversion and the sense of pushing away at the experience that's creating much of the suffering. And if we can see that, be aware of that, we could bring some kindness to it. We can just bring some softness, maybe breathe out as if we were breathing out into that place of discomfort or contraction, just giving it some space. Having the permission, if I need to change my posture, I will. So it's not like some gritted teeth battle against our body. That's not useful at all. But there's a wisdom in, just as there's the wisdom in knowing and learning, it's a learning process, knowing when we might need to change the posture, there's also a wisdom in staying steady with that which might not always be easy. Staying open with it if we can. Because if we move away from everything that's uncomfortable, we find ourselves shimmying and shifting and moving all the time. And in fact, that momentum of movement can accelerate in our lives till we find ourselves moving at great pace, as much of our world and our culture is, moving at great speed in the endeavour to not have to feel that which is uncomfortable. And hence, it's really hard to slow down, to pause, <coughs> let alone stop. Because part of what happens here is we start to feel, oh yeah, one of the dimensions of experience is that sometimes it's not comfortable. That's what the Buddha was speaking about when he talked about dukkha. I teach about dukkha, that which is hard to bear. But he also talk about, taught about the end of dukkha, the transformation of this experience. And one fundamental element of that is understanding how the unconscious habitual reactivity in the mind of grasping and pushing away of aversion and resistance of clinging and attachment how these mechanisms actually amplify distress in our hearts and our minds and that although we can't necessarily control external circumstances or make them be as we wish them to be we can't get things the way we want them, much as we would like them to, we would like to be able to. We can't do that. But we can transform the way we respond to those experiences. And understanding that those response mechanisms, which are based in initially useful biological survival responses, to move towards that which is pleasant because it's associated with what will be good food, Warmth, shelter, comfort, companionship, and to move away from that for which is painful because it will be harmful and dangerous and threatening to us. There's at a certain level some truth in that, but in terms of our inner experience, it's often not about that at all. It's not about our survival. It's about an attempt to somehow control and be permanently comfortable within something that is not in our control and is not always comfortable. But that lack of control and lack of comfort isn't in itself the problem we might imagine it to be. When we start to understand that our engagement with, our response to life, is actually more fundamentally significant in terms of our quality of life and experience than what it is that's happening to us, in us, around us. So there's a, 
a dimension of peace that's immediately available that we can start to discover and explore straight away that comes from our natural ability, although we have to work on it to develop it, but there's a natural capacity to meet and accommodate our experience, to not struggle with it, to become aware of the habitual tendency to struggle with it and begin to just let it be. And it's a, a way in which we bring a kindness to our experience, to let it be. It's an immense kindness to ourselves to not try and manipulate, to not try and control to not be imposing our agenda on our life or on our experience. There's so much disconnection in human life. There's so much disconnection. It's one of the deepest and most painful dimensions of suffering, of dukkha, of that which is hard to bear. And that disconnection is the outcome, the effect of being caught in patterns of grasping, of trying to hold on to, or patterns of aversion and resistance, of trying to push away experience. When we allow experience to come, and equally allow it to go, we start to recognize, we start to see that there's a space for all of it that's here. There's enough space for all of it here. And the those experiences which are difficult are not as difficult as becoming disconnected. And because habitually and unconsciously we disconnect from our experience when it's difficult or unwanted, we associate that difficult experience with the disconnection as if it's the same thing. Do you follow what I'm saying there? It's, it's, it's really a significant thing that the habit of reactivity is so close to the experience of that which we find uncomfortable, difficult, scary, painful or unpleasant. It's so close that we think what's happening is this is what it's like to have an unpleasant experience. But that's including the habitual resistance, reaction, contraction and disconnection that goes with it. When we start to see that these are actually, this is what's happening and then this is what we are unconsciously, habitually, reactively adding to it immediately the possibility becomes available that, oh, there could be just the unpleasant thing without the reaction. Now, we can't just do that. We can't just decide, okay, I'll just stop having that reaction. That would be nice if we could. It takes a little practice to understand the mechanism. But just starting to actually, or to, to imagine that possibility, to explore that possibility that, oh, one could be here with the experience and not necessarily have to pull away from it. Or if we find ourselves pulling away from it, to see if we can meet that experience, to bring a sense of kindliness, of care, of friendliness to those places in ourselves that feel compelled to withdraw, to react. And in that turning towards, in that coming back again and again and again, as we do, there's a process of beginning to heal that disconnection, of starting to fill the gap that otherwise exists between our heart and our mind and the, the fullness of our life when we haven't felt able to inhabit it fully, consciously. And ultimately we are asked to inhabit it unconditionally. And this is an incredible potential that we have. 
It's an expression of immense kindness and profound wisdom to inhabit our life unconditionally. That doesn't mean we can't seek transformation, that we can't engage with the forces within, that we need to um, transform, or forces and situations in the world that need transformation too. But that we actually meet what's here as it is. And there's a way in which we can understand this as a befriending of our life, a befriending of our hearts, of our experience, bringing a warmth and a kindness into it. And in the moments when that's possible for us, you, we start to see, quite naturally, when we can pause, soften, relax into our experience. When we start to remember, which is one of the words, or one of the words that um, is a translation, the word sati in the, in the language the Buddha's teachings were recorded in Pali, sati, which we generally translate as mindfulness or awareness, presence, that also translates as remembering. And so a lot of the practice is just remembering. And we forget. And then remembering again. And then we forget. And then remembering again. Remembering. It's kind of like the word that goes together with, as the opposite of, dismembering. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Dismembering. You know, when we think about getting dismembered, it's like, Something that's fundamentally unified has actually been cut into pieces. That's what dismembered means. And for a human being, it's like losing one's arms and legs is being dismembered. Remembering. If we think of it in those terms, oh yeah, it's like bringing back together something that was initially in fundamentally unitary, unified, but which we might have been experiencing as separate or disconnected. So the remembering coming back again and again and again. And what we start to notice in that is that there's something qualitatively touching that in our hearts we recognize that we know in that connectedness, in that inhabiting unconditionally, wholeheartedly, or just more fully. Now, I don't want to it's like I'm trying to set up some, wow, now we've got to all be unconditional. It's more like moving in that direction. As we move in that direction, we actually start to feel, we can start to sense that there's some qualitative shift that goes with that movement towards more wholeheartedly being here. Being conscious, being awake, being sensitive to and present with our experience. Whatever that might be, whether delightful, whether difficult, whether something kind of relatively boring or neutral or ordinary, whatever it might be. Whatever the experience is, it offers us the opportunity to connect. And in that connecting, when we're not grasping after something that isn't here, when we're not resisting something that is here, that quality of connectedness starts to reveal its depth and its texture, its fullness, and its capacity for actually meeting what it is we're longing for in our hearts. So satisfaction, happiness, peace, fulfillment, and the things we really long for, it's not born of something somewhere distant or some condition or circumstance or future outcome 
that we have to somehow engineer. It's actually what's there when we're with our experience fully, when we can allow it to be as it is, and when we perhaps stop believing the untruth of the idea that there's something fundamentally wrong or missing here. Sure, there's plenty of things to attend to and to take care of, but right here, right now, the possibility is for us in any moment, in each moment, in all moments, to somehow touch more deeply, to land more fully, to allow the deeper wisdom of our life, the deeper wisdom of our heart, to speak to us as we settle, as we become more steady. This wisdom of life that the Buddha spoke of and that wise women and wise men throughout the ages have spoken to us about, have pointed and invited us to know for ourselves. To understand that immediacy that is present in all moments, that is awake and unbound. This is the invitation of our practice. And so far as it has a direction, the direction of our journey is to right where we are and to know this deeply and fully. To realize what is most true. And to know that it has always been so. And that we have not been and cannot ever be separate from this. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, in our practice here together, and in our lives, may we live with kindness. And may we live with awareness. And may we know the happiness of the peace of this moment. For our own well-being, and for the welfare of all beings. <clears throat> 